Hello, I'm John Butler, Investment Director at South Bank Investment Research. South Bank is an independent research house. We look across the markets quite broadly, and indeed, that is my remit. Uh, I have a city background, worked in the city of London, but also worked in Germany and New York uh, for about 20 years before I struck out on my own to work more independently. And for the last uh, couple of years, again, I've been investment director at South Bank Investment Research. As part of my background, I have spent a lot of time looking at precious metals and specifically gold and approaching uh, my analysis of those based on history, based on economic theory, and also to some extent based on what you might call gold practical fundamentals from a supply and demand perspective. I've written a couple of books on the topic titled The Golden Revolution and The Golden Revolution Revisited, uh, as well as a number of, of essays, and I've you know, presented it at, at a number of conferences around the world. So um, I always love to speak about gold, and uh, therefore I'm more than happy to be speaking with you today, Matt. Well, we are delighted to have you on board because I tell you, tell you what, uh, as, as an ex-banker, I'm looking at the precious metal market and I'm struggling to work it out. Normal rules don't seem to apply. Equities are not kind of getting the credit they want. Exploration development or producing companies are being discounted equally. And perhaps that isn't fair. So it, you, you talked about um, the kind of coming out, coming out goal from a historic point of view, economic theory point of view, and a fundamentals point of view. So knowing all of that, have you been able to make sense of what's going on out there? To, to some extent, yes, and to some extent, no. There are various ways to model gold, and the most robust of those, in my experience, are ones that incorporate at least three factors, the first of which is gold's historic relationship with real, that is, inflation-adjusted, long-term interest rates. That's number one. Number two, you take a look at official demand for gold, because official demand is substantial. Uh, and uh, does correlate with some large moves we've seen in the gold market in the past. And then you look at risk aversion. The fact is, is that gold is a traditional place for investors to flee when they get nervous about the state of the world. And so you can kind of put together you know, measures of all of the above into a regression model, and you get a reasonable fit. That said, it's a reasonable fit that requires so-called dummy variables because you get what would be called regime shifts in the global uh, structural demand for gold. Supply, not so much. It's very, very rare that you get a sudden shift on the supply side for gold. And there's a simple reason for that, which is that um, the world's been largely explored. We're not going to find the Spanish discovering a new continent anytime soon, which hugely shifts the supply function for gold because you get you find some you know bumper windfall supply, um, so it's the demand side that you really need to to get your your uh, your you know, wrapped around, and that's where you need these dummy variables to compensate. So, for example, you saw a structural shift in demand for gold in the 1970s after Bretton Woods broke down. You saw a shift in demand for gold uh, in the 2000s uh, following the um, the uh, the uh, Washington agreements for uh, European demand in particular of gold. And you then saw more recently in the wake of the global financial crisis, 2008, 2009, a structural shift in the demand for gold. We haven't seen anything like that more recently. 
And indeed, what you have seen recently, and by recently, let's talk about the last few years, um, something very curious. For the last three years, gold's gone sideways, basically, You know, when you step back from the chart. And indeed, gold is slightly lower in dollar terms today than it was in the summer uh, three years ago. And that seems very curious to a lot of people, right? We've seen uh, COVID come and go, lockdowns come and go. We've seen inflation soar, and, and now it's coming back down. That has been a global phenomenon. And of course, we've seen a major war breakout. <laughs> and you might think, well, let me get this straight, right? We've had uh, a pandemic scare. We've had a huge inflation scare. And we've had a war breakout. And gold's gone sideways? How do you make sense of that? Um, and so that is, a, that is a difficult one. That is a difficult one, and is one that I think uh, belies an easy explanation, as it were. Right. Okay. I'm so intrigued by the way that you analyze this. So, if, if and again, I reference, I guess, my own experience in banking. Like, I used to understand the rules around gold. I understood how to invest in it uh, in a multitude of, uh, of of ways. But it, it kind of feels like gold price is moving one way. Governments are buying gold, but there's a kind of um, well, there's, there's a, been a rapid receding of an interest from you know, retail investors, family offices in, in gold as other things have come along. Bitcoin, you know, blockchain, digital gold, uh, whatever, whatever you want to call it, has come along. You know, before that, we had, um, I think uh, it was the um, cannabis was, was distracting people. So is, is gold going to be enduring? Will it always revert to the meanness? It was used a kind of cliche. Uh, for gold, will will it will gold come back again? Well, I strongly believe that it will, and and indeed, I go so far in my books to argue that if you wait long enough, and 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 the right catalysts come along, uh, gold is going to be de facto, if not de jure, re-monetized for settling international trade imbalances. And there's a lot of speculation about this right now. It's funny how it's almost gone mainstream to at least ask the question whether gold's international monetary role is going to be restored in, uh, to some extent, either to uh, help countries evade or avoid uh, sanctions that might be war-related or related to something else, uh, also as a way simply to try and wean the world away from what you might call um, the, the fiat, uh, inflationism, uh, excessive nature of the way the global economy is currently managed or, or mismanaged in the perspective of some. That is, you know, every, every time an economy slows down, the government spends a lot of money and the central bank prints a lot of money. And history suggests that that ultimately, uh, ultimately leads to severe economic misallocations, negative productivity shocks because of those misallocations. And you end up with economies that aren't growing at all, or even chronically contracting, and that's you know that 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 can't last uh, too long, without a fundamental system shakeup. And so, I, but the, but how do you time that? How do you trade that? Um, it's it's a patient wait and see gate, which is very uninteresting for most investors who like to see results and like to be able to model cash flows and like to be able to value assets based on some ratio, be it price earnings or EV to EBITDA or price to book or, you know, whatever, whatever metrics one chooses to look at 
Gold doesn't really allow you to do that in the same way as a metal. That said, you can look at gold miners um, as a proxy uh, for sort of the premium, as it were, or lack thereof, uh, that the market's placing on gold at any point in time. I want to, I want to talk about um, fiat, or rather anti-fiat sentiment um, out, out there. And I said it came from initially from the, the, the Bitcoin, Bitcoin promoters um, but then it's become with this kind of, as you say, printing of money. People are realizing that perhaps governments are not quite as in control or as knowledgeable as they'd want us to believe. Um, so do you, do you think that um, we can, so I, I know you've touched on bits of this, but do you think the dollar has a, a, a role here to play to kind of bring it back to some kind of order? Order. Um, or do you think with the kind of the backdrop of, you know, Russia, Chinese, India, uh, talking about, you know, alternate dollar currencies that we're going to continue to kind of see this kind of disruption with whether it be fiat currencies or new currencies coming into play? Well, there, there's a lot of history here. And let, let's quickly go back to Bretton Woods. The Bretton Woods system, which was set up uh, in the closing uh, part of the Second World War, place the dollar at the center, but the dollar was explicitly backed by gold. And indeed, uh, it was written into the various protocols around the Bretton Woods Agreement that the U.S. would agree to certain constraints on its ability to print dollars, that is, to make sure that the gold backing for the dollar remained credible. That began to be watered down in the 1960s, as the United States decided that the exigencies of the Cold War and the expanding Vietnam War, combined with uh, President Johnson's so-called Great Society spending programs, it became untenable for the U.S. to try and pursue this guns-and-butter policy mix without diluting the dollar's gold backing. And the first international leader to call, wait a minute, on that, was French President Charles de Gaulle, uh, who was famously advised by uh, this legendary French economist Jacques Rueff, who basically said that this entire Bretton Woods system, look, it was it's, looks nice on paper, but in practice, like any system or agreement, uh, it can be abused. And indeed, they called the U.S. out for abusing it in, in early 1965. That sets off a series of events, most of which are behind the scenes, although they do show up in the historical record if you know where to look, which eventually brings down the Bretton Woods system in the early 1970s. Now, when that happened, it was widely assumed that the U.S. had simply, uh, and President Nixon did this, chosen to suspend gold convertibility as a negotiating tactic to try and renegotiate the currency pegs under Bretton Woods. And those negotiations did take place. However, they failed. And by 1973, the world basically gave up on trying to repeg to gold because they couldn't agree what the currency cross rate should be. And so currencies just began to float. That ushers in what becomes a chronic period of inflation which some refer to as stagflation because a number of economies, including the U.S. and the U.K., didn't grow particularly strongly that decade. And then you had a real crisis in the late 70s and early 80s when actually people started to speculate, and even mainstream people uh, started to speculate. This would include Alan Greenspan, for that matter, 
that it was inevitable as a result of that stagflationary chaos that there would be a repegging to gold at some point. And so you, gold demand soared, absolutely soared, and the gold price briefly reached $850 an ounce, which to put it in perspective of today's terms, that would be equivalent inflation adjusted of something on the order of $3,000 today, right? Way, way above where we currently are. So th that's a bit of historical context for where we are now. The fact is, is that notwithstanding some chit-chatter in the markets and uh, at the official level, that maybe gold uh, or, or maybe the dollar's role as a reserve currency may be declining, and maybe that of gold could be in some to some extent restored at some point, it hasn't materially affected the price. No one's trading that. It's too, it's too speculative. It's too ephemeral. Um, you can't model it. You can't get your hands around it. So it's really not in the price. If something like that comes about, a gold could be trading a lot higher. So that's, that's really interesting. That's, that's fascinating, actually. I, I like, like an historical reference to, um, to Bretton Woods there. But if I look back in the... Because yeah, I'm in the UK. You're actually in the UK as well at that moment. So um, if we look back to Gord Brown, 1999 to 2002, offloaded 395 tons of, of gold, um, uh, he he made a big a big decision there, which I think you know I think most people commenting would, would on said look that that was that was a mistake. You've given away so much of the upside. But he made a decision saying that look the world's a more modern place. It's a smarter place. It's it's digital now. We don't need to rely on this this physical gold anymore. That was his thinking. So do you think this kind of reversion back to gold suggests that we're just not smart enough? We're not clever enough? To, to do anything other than this kind of whole barter system, which kind of gold implies, where people understand it. It's been around for a long time. Right. It's uncomplicated. I mean, how, how do you view right. that? Gold, how do gold, you view that? Gold does have a lot going for it. Uh, first of all, it's rare. Okay. But even though it's rare, uh, a lot of it has been mined. A lot of it does exist in bullion form. The gold market is thus very liquid. Uh, it, it trades it in, in huge volumes. I mean, the physical gold doesn't move around very much. It doesn't need to. The title, however, to that gold uh, does move around a lot. Uh, when central banks go into the market, they tend to sit on it for long periods of time. But when private entities go into the market, they tend to trade with each other far more actively. Okay. Gold is non-reactive and it is very value dense. That is very small amounts of it are worth a lot of money. And so the storage cost for gold in percentage terms is, is trivial. It's even less than custodial fees on assets, if you can believe that. Uh, and that's because custodial fees uh, reflect the nature of modern securities and banking law uh, such that regular filings need to take place. There's admin. There's admin involved in being an asset custodian. And of course, there's some admin involved in being a gold custodian. But actually, if you look at the amount of admin, it's actually somewhat less. So, so gold storage costs are very, very low. The market's very, very liquid. And everyone knows it's rare and that supply is limited. And indeed, even if the global gold mining industry is working absolutely flat out, they're not going to be able to add more than about one, one and a half percent of supply uh, in any given year. These are all things that make gold an outstanding money. And the other thing that makes it outstanding is what you might call almost religious or cultural tradition. 
gold is practically revered. It's revered in myth. It's revered in literature. And so it's kind of revered culturally. And that's not something that you can just you know, wave a magic wand at and make it go away. And indeed, you can almost get religious about gold without trying too hard because you can take a look at, at humanity uh, and you can say, hey, look, you know, we're clever. We come up with new technologies all the time. We're, we're very, very innovative. Uh, but we do make mistakes. We are fallible. And we really screw things up every once in a while. And the fact that we never created gold, gold is not a technology in of itself. It's, a, it's an element, right? Element, element number 79. And this is where the fact that gold was not created by man means that it in of itself is not corruptible by man. The institutions we build on top of it can be, absolutely, but not the underlying. And that reassures a lot of people that there's always a place to come back to. Fiat currencies might fail, banks might fail, financial systems might fail, and indeed, something like Bitcoin, which is actually a very clever idea. I mean, I, I admire the innovation behind Bitcoin and the organic, spontaneous, bottom-up growth of the infrastructure to support it. But it was still created by man, and it therefore is subject to all the possible uh, historical um, and just theoretical reasons why it might therefore in some way be undermined by man, be mismanaged by man, be corruptible by, by man, uh, notwithstanding uh, what people claim is a very robust uh, infrastructure around it. That, that's like you hit the nail on the head for me. It, you know, it, 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 what man made makes it fallible, right? So, you know, so, so let's look at some of those man-made features out there, which I'm intrigued um, about the relation between that and gold. So things like interest rates and exchange rates and credit spreads and, you know, equ equity valuations, et cetera. You know, all, all of these things are kind of financial constructs which can be, as say, manipulated and, and, and controlled and have an effect on, on all of us. So in, in terms of what gold brings to um, the, the, the table, how can it compete with things like that where people have got lots of vested interests and are incentivized to maintain those things? Well, again, gold, look, uh, uh, monetary competition you know, goes back as far as history. Uh, there are references both to silver and gold in Hammurabi's code. Um, they were both used uh, as means of exchange you know, back in Babylonian times. So there's always been a certain degree of monetary uh, co you know, competition, uh, initially, say, between precious metals. But throughout history, you see lots of other competition. However, and this is the interesting one, always and everywhere, when there is a direct challenge to gold's preeminent monetary status, gold always wins. There's not a single example in history of gold not winning. You cut, you know, you come into contact with seashells, you come into contact with carabines, you come into contact with anything else being used as a medium of exchange, and gold eventually crowds everything else out as the ultimate store of value. And yes, that's even true of silver coinage. Uh, and that's indeed partly how the uh, classical gold standard came about in the late 19th century. So, you know, why is that? Again, it, 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 the, the, the explanation is, you know, cultural, religious, whatever it is, but it's also this, this reassurance that, that we get from knowing that the base layer that gold provides, base layer of money, as it were, uh, is in of itself incorruptible. And th there's something else that's important here. Money, uh, in Greek etymology, if you want to go all the way back, 
money uh, is related to the same concept as memory. And the information that we use in a modern economy, uh, you need to know who exchanged what with whom. And indeed, the Bitcoin algorithm is all about this, uh, solving for the so-called Byzantine generals problem. And you need to have, you need to know where money's coming from, who owes what to whom. And gold allows for the final settlement of that. And in, I mean, in theory, any money does, but gold settlement is truly final because it's not a debt-backed money the way modern fiat currencies are. But the information theory of money is actually very, very important. And if you take a look at how Bitcoin operates, to operate efficiently, Bitcoin needs to have nodes. It needs to have exchanges. And those need to be supported. Uh, they represent possible points of failure, however. But to not have those points of failure and for Bitcoin to only ever be transacted directly between individuals is too computationally inefficient to be able to be used as money at scale. And you see that in the mining costs. And of course, the returns that accrue to miners, they halve uh, with every, uh, as you reach various uh, volume creation levels of, of Bitcoin. And the next halvening is going to happen over the course of the coming year. Um, every time that happens, the fees that accrue to miners decline. And therefore, how are the miners going to continue to make money operating? Well, they're going to have to start charging higher fees to process transactions in the first place. And, you know, a lot of energy and electricity goes into maintaining that network. And the, and the fees will grow over time as the rewards to miners decline. So that's why there's all this innovation taking place to try and keep the cost down. But okay, fine. You can't have it both ways. You cannot keep the exchange costs down without creating points of failure. Take a look at what's happened to a handful of crypto exchanges in recent years. They can and do fail. And so gold, again, provides competition for that. All this crypto technology may be fascinating, and it is. And it may be innovative, and it is. And it may be admirable in a lot of ways. But gold naturally competes with that and has certain natural advantages that are not to be discounted. Well, let's... let's... The Bitcoin conversation is something that we've kind of dipped in and out of over the over the past few years as the price and interest rises, and obviously it's it's come or come ways off. Um, yeah, and, and and its role in the in the economy is, I guess, very debatable as governments try and work out how do they control digital currency. Um, you know, and, and, and let, let's see where we end up there. But the, I guess the question I kind of want, want to get to is, you describe an environment where it's harder to find gold and therefore more expensive to find gold therefore there'll be less gold feeding into you know burgeoning economies therefore less gold backed currencies in place that, that's going to do one thing presumably for the gold price one hopes or as an investor one hopes um but how, how do you how do you see this playing out how do governments levelize equalize the 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 value of their own currency versus others. Are we going to see an environment where um, exchange rates become less important, or will the kind of the, the the major the major economies in the world, the West, like the you know the US, etc., will they try to maintain this maintain this disparity? And, 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 and therefore, how does gold help some of the more de the developing countries maybe kind of keep up? 
the, the, the wonderful thing about gold is that it provides a neutral, non-national point of reference for everyone, a point that cannot be manipulated by any one country or central bank to serve its own national interest at the expense of others. And if you take a look at game theory, which I do extensively in my books, the, the concept of a Nash equilibrium applies, in my opinion, to international monetary relations. That is, the money that everyone can agree to use as a reference point should be the one that disarms uh, everyone from being able to engage in disruptive practices such as competitive devaluation or bailing out their own banking system with, with money that they then expect foreign investors to fund or whatever it might be. That all goes out the window if you replace the current dollar-centric uh, global monetary system with gold, a neutral point of reference. And so I think I think that obviously for reasons that are very geopolitical in nature, uh, you can see Russia and China gravitating this way. But you could argue that any country that's a competitive net exporter and therefore naturally accumulates dollars might actually prefer to accumulate some gold instead because the dollar is always at risk of being devalued, as is any fiat currency. And, of course, the U.S. might impose sanctions on you at some future point in time. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, most countries are on a reasonably friendly uh, basis with the United States today, but that could always change. And, and the U.S. has demonstrated very clearly to the world uh, as a result of recent developments. But to be fair, the U.S. has used sanctions for many years. I mean, look look at look at Iran, for example. Um, but the U.S. has weaponized the dollar. And that's kind of shooting itself in the foot, perhaps. In any event, the game theory of international monetary relations, in my opinion, um, leads you to conclude that gold solves for the monetary Nash equilibrium, Right. It's the money that everyone can agree on as kind of a, a least common denominator where everyone has in common the fact that they want a neutral basis for settling international trade, a neutral reference point. Now, that that's not all going to come into existence overnight. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. Um, that said, when you do shift from one monetary or any equilibrium to another, shifts can be fairly fast. You know, they, they do have that characteristic of tipping points. So, um, you know, watch this space. But I, but I do believe that there is the possibility that we will see a large and sudden shift in the global demand function for gold. And if that happens, the only way markets clear is with a much higher price because there can't be a material supply response in the short term. So the price has to go a lot higher if there is a shift in the demand function for gold. That is, countries in general just decide that rather than having only 10 or 20% of their reserves in gold, they want to have 40 or 50% of their reserves in gold. You know, that implies the price of gold really does have to be a lot higher uh, than it is today. And and therefore, and I'll, I'm coming coming to at the end of this conversation, but I, I've got to, I've got to ask about it's, it, you. You've seen um, a lot of geopolitical unrest over the past three years. Uh, initially caused by um, COVID uh, lockdowns, then supply chain issues, then inflationary pressures, then the, as a result, the printing of, of money, and now we're seeing you know um, a lot of this energy transition conversation causing all sorts of. Uh, rethinking not just across Europe, US, but also across Africa, right? So, it, and and then that has led to other conversations about where 
certainly in Africa, where you've seen countries being used to, um, I guess, international foreign direct into into um, investment into those countries, but then sucking out all of the value. And if I'm looking at gold specifically, West Africa and several other countries in Africa where gold is extracted and then exported out or sold out to the benefit of these international investors and, and, and companies. Can you see, given the conversation that you, or your, your, your view of the, of the global market, can you see these governments starting to understand the value of retaining gold, physical gold in, in, in country and either buying the gold or actually saying to foreign direct investments, actually, we don't need your help for those things. Because that could cause dramatic supply chain issues um, around the world. And obviously, they're not going to affect on, on, on price. How have you been reading that situation? Well, it's a, it's a fascinating one. And I don't think it's any coincidence at all that the coup in Niger uh, has brought into question whether or not Niger will continue to supply uranium under the existing pricing conventions to France, and for that matter, whether they will continue to allow gold to leave the country um, for the, frankly, quite practical reason that if you get into a spat with France, um, you, you you might not want to be excessively reliant on on France for any form of, of support, financial, you know, foreign aid, whatever it might be, where you know, and gold gives you some freedom and room for maneuver in that regard. So, you know, this this is an interesting one because I, I think there is a sense in Africa, and there has been for years, but there there is a sense that they are still very much the exploited continent. And I think there's always this underlying desire and principle to try and see if they cannot trade with the rest of the world on fairer terms. From a purely monetary point of view, that the easiest way for Africa to, to, to do that would be to start demanding that their exports get paid for in gold um, rather than some paper currency that once again can be manipulated or devalued at will by whoever the issuer happens to be. Uh, so you know, watch, watch this space. Uh, but I do think it's a, it's it's an interesting one that does sort of highlight um, the the fact that gold remains in competition with the dollar and other fiat currencies as as an as an international money, uh, and one that perhaps Africa could specifically benefit from uh, if it chose to start using gold as money again. Fascinating. That would be a fascinating discussion. Well, look, um, I, I thank you very much for your time today, John. Um, hugely insightful. Learned a lot during that. I'm sure there's a lot more where that came from. So where where would people uh, find you and the, and the team? Where could they go and look? Well, yes. Uh, again, as investment director at South Bank Investment Research, you can find my work and that of my colleagues uh, at our website, southbankresearch.com. There we go. And um, you're also on Twitter or X, as we call it now. At oh, yes. uh, Butler Gold Revo, uh, we'll put all the details in in uh, below this uh, video um, and podcast, and of course there'll be those people reading it in the article to click, click through some of those links. Totally fascinating, and I thoroughly recommend. In fact, while we were talking, I ordered the Gold Revolution Revisited. Um, so um, thank you very much again for your time today, John. We'll see you soon. Fantastic. Thanks, Matt.